Welcome back, everybody, to another Rumbling About Rivers podcast. Yeah, this week uh, we've got quite an exciting person to talk to uh, called Elle Hunt, and she is a freelance journalist and often writes things for things like The Guardian. Um, but in particular, she wrote an article about blue space and nature-based prescriptions, which is how we found her. Yeah, we picked this up a while ago and posted it on our socials. Um, and I think that I think that um, article went down really well and it was really interesting to read um just about kind of blue spaces and the benefit of them and we talked about that a little bit in our previous podcast yeah but i think this time we go a bit more into the research that she she reported on it's a good one Welcome, Elle, to our Rambling About Rivers podcast. So thanks for, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Um, it's really interesting to talk to you because you've done, you've done a couple of articles now for The Guardian about um, sort of blue spaces and nature-based prescriptions. And we were just interested in learning a little bit more about that, really. Um, and you, you, you wrote an article called uh, Blue Spaces, Why Time Spent Near Water is the Secret of Happiness. And that is, I mean, we think it's the secret of happiness, but. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so, so what sort of, um, so how did you go about that article and, and sort of who did you speak to when you were researching that? Um, I think the sort of starting point for that piece was that in recent years, um, particularly with more people living in cities, uh, there's been a lot of focus on green spaces and the importance of those for mental health. Um, and that's been held up as a reason that we need to protect parks and make sure that woodlands are accessible um, as a sort of counter to the rising mental health um, crisis that we experience. Um, this, the benefits of blue space, so that means, as you know, the sea and coastline, but also rivers, lakes, canal, canals, waterfalls, that's less well publicised, but the science has been consistent for at least a decade in that being by water has lots of benefits for both body and mind. So the piece that I sort of set out to write at the end of last year was how those benefits work. Awesome. And was that right? You work with an organisation called Blue Health? Uh, Blue Health is the um, organisation that is doing most of the research into um, the wellbeing benefits of blue space. And that's across 18 countries, mostly in Europe. Uh, the UK um, arm is led out of the University of Exeter by a, a environmental psychologist called Dr. Matty White. And what Blue Health is doing is a sort of multidisciplinary approach to um, how environments can help improve health outcomes and reduce disease and how uh, those benefits can be accessed by a greater proportion of the population across Europe. Um, so among the kind of bodies involved in that is um, the University of Exeter, like I said, and other universities across Europe, as well as the World Health Organization and um, other partners. So that's been probably the, the biggest longitudinal project that's been looking into this area. And I believe it's due to conclude next month um, after starting in January 2016. Oh, amazing. So is there anything that you kind of picked up on that really kind of interests you while reporting on those uh, and writing that article? 
I think the thing that stuck out about the work that Blue Health are doing is that um, if these benefits of blue spaces can be harnessed and sort of, if they can reach more people, the benefits of it can be quite significant um, for things like uh, obesity, depression, anxiety, and a lot of these sort of chronic problems that we see in a lot of areas of society and that are causing quite a burden on the health system. Um, there was some astonishing kind of figure that was um, came through in a 2016 paper that Matthew White co-authored that said, the monetary value of the health benefits of engaging with the marine environment is about 176 million pounds. And there's this huge kind of gains to be had if we can harness what they call blue infrastructure um, and how that can be used to help these public health challenges that at the moment we tend to treat sort of after they've become an issue. Absolutely. And I think one really interesting thing that we found when talking to a previous guest is actually you don't need green space to access blue space. So, you know, you can actually visit blue spaces like rivers within an urban setting. Yeah, I think one of the things that they kind of highlighted is that it's easier to retrofit areas with blue space um, by installing a fountain or having some kind of water feature than it is to kind of find space in a city in particular for a big park or a big kind of green space. Um, And some of the kind of findings that this um, project has sort of come up with Um, is that any kind of water is better than none. I think that's true of green space too, but water is shown to have a particularly restorative effect. And they uh, sort of surmise that that might be something to do with the sound and the quality of light on water. So it really is possible that even a fountain or a small body of water, particularly if that water is moving, will have an impact that, um, as you say, is easier to kind of factor into a pre-existing space than a large expanse of green that's amazing yeah and it's quite quite incredible isn't it that that we've put so much emphasis on green space and obviously green green space is amazing but uh, you know it comes hand in hand as well quite a lot of the time but even something as small as a fountain can make that that tiny bit of impact to, to people's lives totally i mean for england as well i mean for the uk we're a small island as well and i think there's always been this sort of tradition um in britain of philosotherapy where you go to the seaside for health um but i guess what this research shows is that you know we can't change where the coastline is but you can still bring benefits of water um inland as well the other thing that really interested us as well was um that other brilliant article that you wrote uh called what four years at sea taught me about our relationship to the ocean um and learning that actually you know you spent a lot of time at sea when you were younger and i guess it'd be really interesting to kind of understand how that's kind of built your personal relationship with blue spaces yeah um so as you say i spent my a big part of my childhood living on a boat um it was from ages nine to nearly 13 um around from 2000 and that was because it had always been my father's dream to sail around the world and um sort of all family life and his professional life was sort of geared up around that um so it was something i kind of grew up knew knowing that we would do and in 2000, we sort of set out from Weymouth in Dorset and, you know, intending to return in about five years. But as it was, we got to New Zealand and stopped. Um, everything t- took longer and was more expensive than we thought it would be, which is kind of true of all sailing, I think. 
but yes, that meant that basically a lot of my childhood was spent um, on the ocean and sometimes sailing long distances. The longest distances we sailed was um, from Madeira to the Caribbean, which took three weeks at sea. And then we did that again from the Galapagos to the Marquesas in French Polynesia. So I'm very comfortable with being at sea, although I sort of felt as an adult that um, living on board a boat in the way that my parents continue to do was not for me. Uh, yes, I have, a, I have a sort of strong, some, like I enjoy being by water and I enjoy, um, you know, prioritizing islands and so on when I can for holidays, but I also quite like um, living in a city and having friends. <laughs> I'm dreading my dad listening to this because he's a sailor and um, that was probably one of his biggest dreams was to sail around the world. It's a lot of people's dreams. For me, it's interesting as well because obviously the older I get, the smaller proportion of my life it becomes. Um, and I think when you've kind of experienced that, you know how massively it differs to the, the dreams as well. Like a big part of my memory of that time was just everything kind of going wrong and my dad trying to fix the engine and fix the toilet. Yeah, that kind of, a lot of grumbling. But do you, do you sort of long for, do you long for the sea now that you're based in an urban environment or do you, you know, do you find your sanctuary elsewhere now, I suppose? It was a particular age for me where I was just about to turn 13 when we sort of moved on to land for the foreseeable future. And my younger sister, who was 18 months younger than me, I think she had probably less complicated feelings about that time spent on the boat um, than I did because she was able to kind of go into schooling at an easier age, I think. Um, and the boat that we lived on uh, is big for boats standards it was um, 52 feet but that's not a huge amount of space when it's for you know people living in there full time um, so I have sort of mixed feelings about the experience but it's also really hard at that age when it's so influential to you know your development to separate my interests and kind of abilities and values from who I am, am today from that experience really and obviously I saw a lot of amazing things that um, most people will never experience in their lives at a really young kind of age. So yeah, I, I have good experiences with it and it's impossible to separate from, you know, the person that I went on to become even as I don't sail anymore. Yeah. So you live in a you live in central London now, do you? Yes, a South London tower block. Yeah. Yeah, and I think just pick on that. I think a lot of people, you know, when they think of blue space, don't they? They think of the ocean. But uh, and actually, uh, especially in this current time, the ocean is very inaccessible uh, for a lot of people now. So, yeah, have you have you been managing to kind of access these blue spaces within a kind of urban setting? Not at all, unfortunately. I mean, I found it sort of hard enough to access any kind of uh, re uh, replacement for blue space, even in London, because I grew up in New Zealand, where you're obviously very close to the coastline. And that's where most of the kind of urban developments are. Um, so before coronavirus and the lockdown, I used to spend as much time as I could around South Bank, which was at least a body of water, even if it was somewhat brown. Um, and since then, I've been mostly reliant on the kind of parks for any kind of nature, you know, top up. Um, and fortunately, London is filled with parks and at the moment they are filled with people. Uh, so I've been very grateful for that kind of injection of nature when at a time when we're kind of all being forced inside our tiny flats 
for longer periods than ever before. Um, but certainly, as soon as we can leave our homes in good conscience, I would like to get to the coastline. Um, before, in the world before, I used to prioritize going to islands um, and the sea for holidays, and that would be my first um, desire when we can travel is to, to make for the coast. Yeah, so you still have that embedded in you that you need to be near the sea. Yeah, yeah. I think everyone has a sort of different landscape that maybe resonates with them. Like I've heard people say similar things about mountains and people say similar things about sort of vast open landlocked spaces. But for me, it's always been by the sea. And I think, as you say, it's that kind of sense of a, a, an edge, you know, like looking out on an expanse of sort of nothingness. Um, one of the things that's come up in this research on the sort of psychological benefits of water is that it's constantly moving um, and that sort of ebb and flow of both the tides and then also of the waves when you look at it is quite meditative and sort of forces the attention outwards and kind of prevents this sort of rumination on like negative feelings or um, sort of bad experiences that is a factor of depression and anxiety. So it's being by the sea for me and many other people, I think, kind of takes you out of your head a bit and um, requires you to focus on experiences outside yourself. And I think I'm sure that happens with other environments, but there is something about the movement of the sea and the kind of quality of light on water and the wind that's often found by the coastline that I think is quite helpful for people who can tend to get stuck in their heads a bit kind of picking up on this kind of almost like what you mentioned in your one of your articles about uh, nature-based therapy or prescriptions and uh, do, do you think as a society is that something that we, we maybe should be investing in? Totally I think the kind of scales of the the crises that we're seeing in public health whether it's obesity and kind of lack of physical activity or mental health and the kind of toll of you know, depression and anxiety and how prevalent that is, I think that the health system should be doing all it can to kind of focus on preventative interventions and also things that make use of the, the resources and environments that we already have. Um, there was a group that I spoke to for the article about a sort of surfing for mental health um, initiative in North Devon and that's an example of how one of these kinds of nature-based interventions can work um, and the scientists working in this area hopes that spending time in blue spaces doing activities whatever that might be or and green spaces will become a kind of mainstream and formalized response to um, the issues that we're often being treated in a kind of like medical way uh, and that's one of the things that Blue Health is looking to shore up is that if they can kind of identify and then quantify the benefits, it will be easier to kind of apply them to these sort of public health challenges that we're seeing. Yeah, and I think it's only become more prevalent uh, as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic is that actually how much we actually do value uh, green and blue spaces and the natural environment and actually how important it is. I find it fascinating how many people are out actually at the moment, you know, it's, it's sort of you remove the shops, remove the sort of driving anywhere. And then all of a sudden everyone's like, Oh, we've got this, this outdoor space. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's interesting to use the example of parks in that um, the best, like one of the best things of living in London is that even if you have this very small flat, like I do in a kind of council block, 
you're never far away from what feels like an open shared space and I know one of the stories that I was kind of worked on uh, probably not recently but in the past has been the privatization effectively of public space like parks by councils renting them out for um, use by music festivals or events and so this kind of idea of uh, corporate interests encroaching on public spaces I think I think that that will be harder to, to get away with in the future well now that we see that parks are really important for everyone to be able to access in exactly in like times like these completely yeah and it's a you know these kind of green spaces it's a, it's a public public entity and it should be kept that way really totally and yeah you saw that um earlier in lockdown when there was the sort of bid to try and keep people to only access exercising in parks and not spending any time uh, I think the words used were always sunbathing and picnicking um, but then a lot of people kind of push back about uh, about that saying well we don't have any other kind of shared we don't have a lot of space in our own homes so this is really important for us just to remain kind of sane during this very stressful time is to be you know in a wide open space and see some kind of shard of nature that we can include in this urban environment yeah absolutely so so i mean talking of sort of inland spaces and obviously we're we're interested in rivers in particular um but but there is sort of a role there for us i suppose as the rivers trust to promote rivers and try and make them more accessible and enjoyable what do you think is preventing people from making more use of those blue spaces that are available I think one of the interesting things that came out from the um, Blue Health uh, papers was that the, the benefits of particularly coastal living are strongest for people living in the poorest areas. So the kind of health benefits will be felt the most by people who have socioeconomic disadvantage. And so for that reason, I think it's really important to ensure that everyone can access those benefits. And as you say, that's about making sure that um, I think things like transport costs are a factor. Often as well, land by water, and that, that includes rivers and lakes, uh, can get snapped up for urban development. And then that has a very like high premium on house prices as well. So I think it's about making sure that the land around water remains kind of public access and is protected and not, you know, handed over to be sort of lakeside or, or coast, coastal apartments that then only the elite can afford. Yeah, it's it, that's that's that sort of um, difference in social benefit is really interesting, actually, because actually what you'll find is the people who live in the poorer areas have probably got rivers um, and lakes are not well, as well looked it's after. It's interesting you mentioned that because the researchers have kind of highlighted this sort of gentrification that can happen around waterside areas as well as it does in, uh, you know, in cities and in, inland cities where, the, you know, the most pristine water areas are in the richest areas and you know the benefit there is studies as well there is research i think that shows that the more polluted the water environment the less health benefits there is from being around it as you would expect um so it is a kind of class and a socioeconomic issue as well where keeping the health of keeping these like marine spaces and blue spaces healthy will have more benefits for people with being around them and we have to look at which environments we prioritize and who benefits absolutely and i think you know this rings true for the whole climate debate as well it seems at the moment it's a very middle class problem and actually the people that are going to be affected by it most 
are actually probably the poorest? I think Extinction Rebellion, for example, has done a bit to change this, but often the people most concerned with the climate crisis and, and commun- doing most of the communicating about that are, are often white and middle class. And it, that it has the effect of, I guess, mobilising people who were similarly white and middle class. And it's, you know, we saw the same with the response to the coronavirus, where for a long time it was harder to reach poorer communities and understandably because it may not have seemed like a as much of a threat given those other kind of pressures on on their day-to-day existence absolutely yeah no totally but actually you know it has such it could have such a profound effect and even you know as you say just simple things like blue access to blue spaces can have such a massive benefit that's maybe they don't quite or we we as a society don't quite realize so that's really interesting it's interesting, and I think Britain is probably better place than a lot of places because the the seaside in Britain has always been a kind of accessible, often working class space. Um, historically, it was somewhere obviously that you know royalty would go to get well and have a sort of respite, but it was also shared by people who live there all year round. Do you think people in general have gained, gained greater appreciation of nature um, in blue spaces in particular during uh, COVID nineteen pandemic? I think so. Yes, I think so. Um, one of the things that kind of comes to mind is the uh, the nature writer Robert McFarlane was running a sort of social media um, book club around the Living Mountain by Nan Shepherd, and that a lot of people were reading that you know sort of piece about um, mountains in Scotland as a sort of way of escaping the confines that they find themselves in the midst of the pandemic, but. I, as I said earlier, I gravitate more naturally to um, ocean spaces. So I've been like rewatching a bit of the Blue Planet documentary and things like that to kind of try and escape my tower box. But yeah, like I say, I'm just sort of waiting on the green light from the government to travel within Britain so that I can get on a train and, and you know, see the, see the skyline again. Yeah. Yeah. How do you think we can sort of harness the energy that people, you know, and, and encourage people to protect them post COVID, you know, when this is all over this, obviously people using the green spaces and blue spaces is amazing, but, but do you think they're just all going to turn away from it? Do you think that, or do you think they've connected with it long-term? Well, I think one of the things that this um, pandemic has kind of focused people's minds on is what is really necessary in order to live the way we've been living and what we were saying earlier about the reliance that people are finding themselves having now on parks I think could be a really good way of protecting them for the future and I think with any kind of nature intervention um, if you appreciate one kind of environment I think it's any easier for others to the, the protection and kind of support for others to follow so what I would like to see um, is some kind of guarantee after this pandemic passes that parks will be prioritised as a sort of necessary part of living in the urban spaces. And then I think once that green space has been recognised and perhaps formalised, it will be easier for the same to happen with blue space, particularly as blue health um, research wraps up this year. Yeah, it might be a really good time for them to wrap up that research, actually. It might bring us to that point where we suddenly start um, thinking about what next. Totally, yeah. And I think one the one thing I was just going to mention is actually how quickly these things can kind of change and adapt. And I think we've seen that in the um, uh, through this pandemic is actually 
um, some of those barriers that are kind of preventing us doing this kind of thing have actually been kind of unlocked a little bit, especially around, you know, you've seen a lot of these in urban spaces, roads being closed down and cycle extra cycle lanes being put up. And that's happened phenomenally quickly, which in reality would have taken a long time previously. So I think, I think hopefully focus people's mind and actually realize that, you know, some of these barriers that prevent us are, are maybe not barriers at all. Yeah, I mean, I've, I'm sure there's never been so many people out exercising daily, you know, now that that's the only thing they can really do outside their homes. Um, and it would have been hard to imagine a time before this where you have Boris Johnson telling everyone to walk or cycle to work. Um, and that's exactly the kind of advice that has been um, sort of put forth for public health crisis for a long time. So I think you're right, there will be this readiness to kind of um, do things differently um, capitalizing on for example the drop in carbon emissions as fewer cars have been on the road and as you say the momentum of making all of London car free um, so I think it will be interesting to see if those make uh, a lasting impact or, or whether we will sort of lapse back into the old ways but I think there will be just as we're seeing this crisis as evidence of the need for the NHS to be really like supported and bolstered for the long term I think the same might happen as well for parks and then it will be really easy once to, once green spaces have kind of been recognized for blue spaces to jump on that bandwagon. Well I think that really kind of wraps up this podcast really nicely what do you think Jane I think one last thing we tend to ask is which might uh, you, it might be better to ask which coastline but we always ask our, our guess what is their favorite river but in this instance it might be also interesting to know what's your favorite part of the coastline i'm going to get out of out of answering, answering that question by pointing to new zealand where uh, there are a lot of great rivers and that's where i grew up but in particular i don't know if you've looked at this in the past rivers in new zealand are legally recognized as entities as people so my favorite river would have to be the whanganui river which um was in 2017 recognized a living entity um so that's i think in new zealand there's a much kind of more natural framework for um existing alongside nature um than i've seen since living in the uk um and so i often look back to there as a kind of like fondly as a, as a society that recognizes the importance of, of blue and green spaces in a, in a pretty kind of innate way and i think it just helps particularly in a farming nation to kind of prioritize this idea that balance is important in agriculture you know balancing the needs of the environment and agriculture for the benefit of people and society and i think that there's just some some really interesting and kind of good models for making the most of nature but also protecting it well amazing thanks so much for taking the time uh, out of your day to chat to us it's really interesting fascinating oh well yeah that was that was that was really good that was really interesting um i really enjoyed that actually um kind of a different perspective i think from others that have joined the podcast what do you think jane yeah, it's definitely interesting, um, you know, that she is living in the city now, but had this like massive adventure when she was younger over the ocean. And that obviously is embedded into her mindset of, you know, where where she's um, most comfortable is out at sea. Well, or at least on the beach, perhaps relaxing. 
that connection to the ocean is obviously ingrained within her, which is amazing. Yeah, and I think a lot of people can relate to that. Amazing. So yeah, another podcast. Hope you enjoyed that, folks. Uh, if you out of interest, if you've got any suggestions for things that we could people that we could get on the show or interesting topics that you'd like us to cover, please do comment below or get in touch and uh, we'll do our best to meet your needs. Awesome. Thanks again, folks, and we'll catch you soon. Bye. <laughs>